What's happening in Bible translation that should have Christians everywhere worried? Two important guests today discuss the Arlington Statement on Bible Translation. It's an important document. We'll talk about it more in one minute. But first, let me tell you about Daniel. Daniel fled his home in Peru when he was 12 years old after his drunken father threatened to kill him. Daniel became an alcoholic like his father. One day, he ended up at a local church. But as a Roman Catholic from his upbringing, Daniel resisted the evangelical gospel that he heard and vowed to disprove Christianity itself. Well, that didn't last long. Daniel was converted, and he developed a passion to share the gospel with the lost. That's when ABWE missionary Steve Douglas noticed and began discipling him for nine years. Today, Daniel has founded a seminary in his city of Arequipa, and he's planted 15 churches of his own. Daniel's special, but he's not unique. We're finding partners like these all over the world. And in this changing global climate, we can continue to do greater things for the Great Commission by partnering with people on the field, already risking all to make disciples. Your gift to the Global Gospel Fund can impact a thousand missionaries working in more than 70 nations. Become a partner now. Go to abwe.org slash globalgospelfund20. That's abwe.org slash globalgospelfund20. Have you ever been approached by a student expressing a missionary call? For the last 15 years, Spurgeon College's Fusion program has been equipping students for missions through life-on-life discipleship, college coursework, and intensely practical training. If you know a student desiring to become a missionary, send them to Fusion at Spurgeon College as their next step. To learn more about how we are equipping students for a lifetime, visit SpurgeonCollege.com Fusion. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communications for ABWE International, joined by Scott Dunford, West Coast Advancement Coordinator for ABWE. Scott, maybe we'll do an episode eventually and explain what our long job titles actually mean. Yeah, I would love that. That'd be oh, helpful. I'd, be, and I'm sure it would be great listening as well. Oh, yeah. That'll be the highest rated episode we've ever had. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad that's not what we're talking about today. You know, something that we've talked about a little bit on the show is Bible translation. Um, We've addressed Mm. it from multiple different angles. We hit on it briefly with our interview with uh, Pierre Hosny and some things that are happening with missionaries that are pursuing uh, Bible translations that are geared towards uh, Muslims or people coming out of the Islamic faith. That's something that we'll get into a lot here really soon. But, you know, ours is an era where this this notion of uh, of putting the scripture in every person's heart language um, is, is actually being drawn into question um, in some important ways. I mean, whether you have somebody like Andy Stanley, right, who's, who's telling us perhaps that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament um, or, or saying that, you know, for the Bible tells me so is where our trouble began. Um, but even on the mission field, uh, translations of the New Testament outnumber translations of the entire Bible by two to six, excuse me, 2.6 to one, right? So we have a, a disproportionate number of just New Testaments. We're not translating necessarily all of God's word, the full counsel of God's word. And then specifically, you dive in, and when there's some of these specific Bible translations that are highly contextualized, there's some difficulties there. There's certain decisions that are made in the translation that can be pretty controversial and actually heretical. Well, there's a, you know, there, there's a tension sometimes. One, you know, hats off to anyone in Bible translation. You know, anyone who's worked at all close to Bible translation understands that 
not only is it grueling work that takes a lot of uh, scholarship and training ahead of time, even in besides Greek and Hebrew, even just in the the languages that you're working with. But on top of that, you know, it's known to be one of those one of those jobs that have high rates of depression because it can be very solitary and very grueling to get a little bit going. And then you also have like in some of the places where there is no scripture, I, I was part of a, a small, very small part of a team that was working on uh, around uh, the Uyghur scriptures. And you've got all these people from all these different backgrounds and very different organizations even, and they're all giving their two cents of what should be used and how it should be done. And uh, it gets to be very complicated. And so uh, I think that our discussion today will be uh, hopefully be helpful to people who maybe are unfamiliar with the Bible translation process. So Scott, who are we talking to today? So we have uh, two guests, one of them that you're very familiar with, Pierre Husney, uh, Executive Director of Horizons out of Beirut, although he's currently, as far as we know, in Colorado right now. Uh, and uh, also someone you that you have not yet met and that we are just meeting ourselves and excited about this uh, set. Seth Vetrano Wilson, uh, he is a passionate advocate of Bible translation. Uh, he is the director of biblical translations for Horizon, um, and he's been working in Bible translation for over 10 years, uh, particularly um, in the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And we're really thankful to have you guys on and talk about a new statement that's come out on, on a tr Bible translation that both of you have had a part in, as well as many other organizations and individuals called the Arlington Statement. So first of all, welcome to the show. Uh, Pierre, we're going to skip you for right now. But Seth, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and how you got into Bible translation? Yes, sure. Um, well, I was actually... Uh, raised in the Mormon church and came to faith in Jesus uh, in college, partly through the influence of Pierre and his family. Mm. Uh, so thank God for, for the Husnies. Um, and then I later uh, lived in Lebanon for a little while with, with the Husnies and others, um, and then got married and moved to Thailand with my wife. We were working with Wycliffe and SIL. And uh, that's how I got involved in Bible translation. I've always loved languages. I've always loved uh, you know, since I came to faith, I've loved the word of God. And so those two things together, I was like, wow, this is, this is awesome. Currently you're living in Thailand. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing there? Yeah. So my main job for the last 10 years has been helping language groups decide how they want to write their language. It's mm -hmm. called orthography. So interestingly enough, most people uh, who don't have any, any Bible, don't actually have any writing at all. They don't have any books at all. And so one of the first steps in that process is helping people mm. decide how do they want to represent their language in writing. And so I help kind of work through the sound system of their language, and huh. then they decide how they want to represent each sound in, in writing. It's a pretty exciting process. I'm glad you're doing it. I, I can't even I, w I can't even imagine where I'd start with that. And uh, it just goes to show like, Thank God for people who love to get involved in the technical aspects of, of translation. And I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit more. But uh, Pierre, can you tell us a little bit? So the, what is the Arlington statement and why is something like this statement necessary today? First of all, thank you so much for having us. Uh, I'm so excited that Seth is with me because uh, he's really, uh, you know, the you know, the key person with Horizons to, to talk about the Arlington Statement. So the Arlington Statement is really a proactive statement. Um, it's a positive thing. Uh, in some ways, we can say it's a it's kind of a, 
uh, a result of some negative things in uh, in Bible translation happening. But I think uh, in comparison with other, uh, I guess, uh, petitions and and uh, and articles and exposés that have unfortunately had to happen, the Arlington statement is a little bit different than those because it's really a rallying point for conservative Bible translators. Um, uh, you know, to, to be able to rally around and say, this is our standard for, for accuracy in Bible translation. And here are, you know, a short list of things that uh, are general principles of what we're not going to be doing. And we're going to be committing not to do those things. And, you know, much like a lot of the Old Testament uh, uh, laws, you wonder, why did that law come about? It's kind of because somebody had done something mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> something creative and really bad. And they had to create all these specific laws uh, about what not to do because somebody actually did that. And so in a sense, there is, uh, there's a bit of that in the Arlington statement, meaning, you know, a lot of people m- that are listening may, may be wondering, why do we have to have a statement that says we shouldn't put uh, terminology from other religions into the Bible that we shouldn't put like the Shahada from, from Islam that says there's no God, but God and Muhammad is his prophet. Why, sh- why should we not use pieces of those statements? Uh, or, or I guess the question is why do we even have to say that we shouldn't do that in Bible translation? Yeah. And so that's a, you know, that's something that you really have to understand Bible translation to, to answer. And, and it's kind of shocking to know that that actually has happened and is happening. Yeah, I think for a major portion of our audience, they, they've not heard of Muslim insider Bible translations. They have no concept that there would be certain translations of scripture that are not just accommodated to a certain audience, um, but actually change the content of the written word at, at, at points. Absolutely. So it's a very simple statement. It only has three articles. Um, so the first article is, is this, and I'll just read it for the sake of our, our listeners. Uh, It says translators should not translate in a way that explicitly or implicitly affirms the theology of other religions at the expense of the meaning, context, and theological implications of the original language text. So just like you just said, we we shouldn't be inserting the theology of other religions into the text. So how has that been an issue in translation? What did somebody do that made it necessary to put out a, a, a statement like that that seems to probably many of us pretty uncontroversial? Yeah, uh, maybe Seth sure, would like yeah. to so share some of these one examples example that's given uh, in from the his statement research. Itself is, as Pierre mentioned before, the inclusion of the Islamic statement of faith, the profession of faith, which says, La ilaha illallah, there is no God but God, or there is no God but Allah. And the second half of, of that statement is, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. And uh, the first half, meaning that there is no God but God, that has been included in several Arabic translations. Um, and it's coming out of places, for example, in Psalm 1831, it says, for who is God but the Lord? Or who is God mm. but Yahweh? You know, mm-hmm. the one true God of Israel. And there are translations that will say, oh, if, if translations into Arabic that will say, well, this is an affirmation of monotheism. And in this context, in the Muslim context, the way that they affirm monotheism is by saying la ilaha illallah, and so that's what we'll say too. Uh, or, for example, in the New Testament, it will say things like there is one God, you know, there's one mediator between God and man, and 
And uh, those kinds of verses will also be places where they will add this shahada, this this mm. statement of, of faith. And uh, the reasons, you know, there's various reasons why we would not think this is a good idea. But fundamentally, at its core, it's the idea that when you look at the Bible and how it affirms monotheism, how has the Holy Spirit affirmed monotheism? It's by saying, not just God in general, and certainly not the God of Muhammad, but specifically the one true God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord. He is the only God. And when you look in the New Testament, the affirmations of monotheism are always done in, in highly Trinitarian context or context where it affirms the deity of Christ. There's one Lord, there's one God, there's one spirit. You know, these are the places where, where monotheism is affirmed. And, and so when you say la ilaha illallah, Muslims will understand that in a very, uh, in a very Islamic way, they'll understand, oh yes, you're right. And Muhammad is a prophet. Oh, and also there's no God, but Allah. And oh, that means that, uh, you know, that denies the Trinity because in their minds, Allah, you know, can only be one. You can't have a Trinity and you can't have any kind of complexity to the nature of God. He has to be an absolute singleton, you know, absolutely mm. one. And that's just not a biblical concept of God at all. And so you're affirming something that is not actually true. Right. That's Tawheed. That's monism. That's not Trinity. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Would it be similar to maybe a, you know, so, like if someone took the phrase, you know, for God so love the world, dot, 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 you know, that every Christian would just fill in, you know, the rest of John three sixteen just because they know that that's what follows. Is that a similar kind of thing to what's happening here? Yeah. If you can imagine Muslims making a Bible translation, putting in for God so love the right. world, they'd be like, whoa, what's going on? Yeah. You're not Christians. Why are you doing this? So what is the motivation behind that? Like, you know, I, I think for some of our listeners, especially those who haven't worked in Islamic contexts or have been around translation, they're probably shocked to hear that that could even be something that Christian Christians would do. But so what is the motivation, do you think, behind a, maybe a Bible translator doing something like that? It's hard for me to speak to people's motivations. Um, I know I talked to one person who said, you know, that that they, they thought that this was uh, going to be better received, um, that it would speak in their context better, things like this. But, you know, it doesn't I don't understand why ultimately uh, the you know, it just seems so inaccurate to me ultimately and affirming something that's not actually true. So I think they would kind of brush over those differences. They would say, well, it's close enough, you know, and I would just say, no, it's not close enough. If I could try to answer that question, I think a lot of it is that, um, unfortunately, in missions in the past, specifically 100 years, I mean, we've we've drawn a lot on the anthropological uh, or social sciences. And so they've looked at, you know, communicational theory, you know, they're really looking, I think, you know, there's some good things along with that, you know getting us to think. But I think when you look, when, when they, when a Muslim picks up a Bible, I think the, the intention is that they don't want this, this Bible to be offensive to those Muslims. So for example, if it has a big cross on the front of it, the, the Muslim just might not want to pick it up because they, you know, the cross might mean to them crusader, you know, or it might evoke images that are not uh, helping them to really, uh, you know, be encouraged to read this book. So I, I would agree with that. And um, I've been involved actually in the design of, of uh, Bible covers for Muslims. And uh, so I think the key is you don't want to, you don't want to offend them unnecessarily, but at the same time, you don't want to go too far in the other direction. And the other direction is where you dress up the Bible as a Muslim book. 
So the reason why they're doing that, I think, is because they want the Muslims to accept it. And so they say, okay, the, the, you know, the Muslim is familiar with this kind of uh, design. It's familiar with something like the Quran. So if we make it similar to that, they will accept it more. But the, the trap that they fall into is, is what I like to call contextual interference. And so that when you actually take something out of their context and plant it in the Bible, like, for example, La ilaha illallah, uh, there is no God but God, um, there's baggage, there's contextual baggage that comes with it. So, for example, yeah. if I say just do it, uh, just do it uh, is, you know, for anybody that uh, doesn't live under a rock, they know that that's a Nike uh, that's a Nike saying, right? So there's branding that is associated and you see the swoosh, you know, the Nike swoosh and you, you know, so there's, there's that whole set of meaning that comes along with that. And so what the, the Bible translators are not understanding is that when you insert something from Islamic uh, tradition, you're actually bringing a whole lot of Islamic baggage in there, like the mono monism instead of, uh, you know, Trinitarian, uh, concept of God. And that's what's causing confusion in the Bible translation uh, translations. That goes back to something that we've explored in multiple ways on this show, which is one of the real issues facing Christian missions in post-modernity is this hyper contextualization, not just good, healthy contextualizing the gospel so that it can land and be received, but focusing so much uh, that that we end up, at, whether out of fear of man or maybe out of good motives, end up compromising the message. And what you're talking about is an example of that. But what I think is also important for people to realize is that it's not just with Islam. Uh, we talk about that a lot with the insider movement. Um, where we, we mentioned Muslim insider Bible translations. Um, for instance, a lot of them would, would not want to translate the phrase son of God because that would be offensive to a Muslim understanding. But it doesn't just have to do with Islam. I think this comes up in other contexts, reaching other religions, Hindus uh, and others. And that's something that I want us to explore. And we're going to take a look at the second and third articles of the statement right after this break. We're with Seth Vitrana Wilson and Pierre Hosni. Cross Conference 2020 is coming. This December, gather a group of 18 to 25 year olds in your living room or church auditorium and join the Cross 20 live stream. Your group will hear from David Platt, Trip Lee, John Piper, and others as they aim to emphasize the clarity of the gospel, the centrality of the local church, and God's heart for the nations. Registration is just $10 per person. You can learn more and register at cross20.com. Learn more again and register at cross20.com. Hi, I'm Scott Dunford, and I'd like to share with you about a new nonprofit ministry established to help churches, Christian schools, and other ministries protect children and prevent abuse. Rich Hamar from Church Law and Tax states that the number one reason that drives churches to court is child sexual abuse. I can't think of anything more devastating to these lives, their families, and our witness before a watching world than sexual abuse that takes place in ministry. The traumatic impact often leaves the vulnerable not wanting anything to do with God or his people. Our efforts toward evangelism, discipleship, and spiritual formation are not only neutralized, but shattered. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention was formed to help ministry leaders understand the complexities of child 
protection and abuse prevention. They are establishing standards and an accreditation program that will help verify that appropriate measures are in place at your church or ministry. Learn more about them. Find a helpful and free assessment tool to help you see how you measure up in this area. Go to abuseprevention.org and click on the link for this resource assessment. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention. And this June, attend the National Conference. Go to abuseprevention.org and register with ABWE21 as the promo code to receive 20% off your ticket. That's promo code ABWE21 to receive 20% off. Brooks Buser, president of Radius International. I am here with Mark Dever, senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist and president of Nine Marks. When you go to a culture that's a different language than yours, you're ending up in a kind of majority language that's been reached. And there are other people still more hidden, and it's those people who are often almost entirely unreached, and they take more cross-cultural effort is there a way we can better train people to have more realistic expectations of what life is like in the kind of two steps away from my culture and be able to sustain family life with its normal difficulties there so that there can be a long years and even decades long witness in that culture. And it seems like Radius is set up to provide that training. Radius is about reaching unreached people groups. Go to RadiusInternational.org, RadiusInternational.org. So as we look at Article 2, it says this, because every person in every culture needs to know God's truth in all of its fullness, Bible translations should not avoid confronting sin or falsehood that the original language texts confront, whether among believers or unbelievers. So the question is, why is this a temptation for Bible translators that needs to be addressed? Seth, can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, so the uh, second, second uh, article talks about the, you know, wanting to avoid offense. And, and I think sometimes people will justify this. There's a, it's a natural human tendency to want to have your message received. And when it comes to the gospel, you'd think, oh, that's even more important. But but the problem is we, we ultimately have to be faithful to what God has given us. And if God says something, we need to, we need to give that to people, even if they don't like it. So, for example, in a, in a Hindu context, uh, there have been people who have you know, said we should, when we have the, fa- the, the story of the prodigal son, where the father is so happy, the son comes back and he wants to celebrate. And he says, quick, bring the fattened calf and, and kill it. Let's celebrate and eat because... You know, this son of mine, is he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. But a Hindu who reads that would say, what? Slaughter the fatted calf? No, you can't do that. They would be very offended. And so some translators would say, look, the point of Jesus's story has nothing to do with cattle or calves. And so just take that out and just say, look, you know, let's have a feast and celebrate. Just leave it at that. And, and so that's tempting to people. They say, Yo, you know, it's not the main point of the story. Here's the problem, though. If when you look at the Old Testament, mm. you've got over and over again mm-hmm. slaughtering of cattle. And so there's just no way to avoid that offense. If you try to, you'll completely rip out the entire sacrificial system. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, you know, which has its, uh, you know, uh, shadow, uh, foreshadowing of, of Jesus, ultimately, and his sacrifice. But... Uh, also, even, you know, if in the New Testament, let's say, let's say you kept it in the Old Testament, but you just took it out in the New Testament. Well, what would, what would happen then? Then a, 
you know, somebody who's reading this translation, who let's say is from a Hindu background, for example, might read it and say, well, uh, you know, they had, they had all kinds of things in the Old Testament. You know, they had warfare and, and violence and stoning and things. But, but in the New Testament now, we're, you know, we're, we have a different ethical system. In our, in our new ethical system, we, we're vegetarians. We don't eat cattle, you know, or we don't eat, you know, uh, anything that is against our, you know, Hindu religion. Uh, and so that's how we're going to do it. And in fact, all these people who are eating beef are sinning because Jesus never wanted mm. that to happen. Now, that's a distortion of New Testament theology. That's a distortion of what Jesus would have clearly believed because he's telling a story, including the slaughtering of the, fat, of the cattle. So it's true that that's not the main point of the story here. But when you take those details out, you're actually robbing people of the opportunity to understand the world from God's perspective. That's so, you make the case that you make such a clear case for that, that it's hard to imagine if you started messing with those things where it could lead. You even bring up in the article or uh, the article brings up um, is another example of just the idea of, of idols and how that would be offensive to people. And yet throughout scripture, idols are, are, you know, are constantly condemned in very serious ways, not just in Isaiah 44, as the article talks about, but throughout the, the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament. Um, where are the places in Bible translation where, where you see this kind of thing being, being fudged a little bit? You know, it's sometimes thankfully caught at the consultant level, you know, so there will be mm. translations that will be uh, proposed and then people in oversight over them who will say, well, you can't do this. Uh, you know, you have to, you can't soften this just because the people are, are going to be offended by it. Um, and so thankfully not, not all of the examples that are given are things that, to my knowledge have been, have made it to print. Um, but there are definitely things that are temptations for translators that need to be cut at the pass. So I imagine that that probably has been done, uh, in this second case about the, you know, softening the idolatry. I'm sure it has been done. Uh, but thankfully the example I know was cut at the past. Well, and I think it's important to understand, we, we talked about this on a previous episode, but there is increasing pressure to, uh, increase the number of Bible translations by shifting to a different methodology, which might have a lot of good merits to it. Um, but I, I think there's movements overall to de-emphasize oversight and to de-emphasize having sort of the multiple eyes on it and allowing those with, you know, some of the, the theological chops uh, to, to really vet some of these things. And uh, we really have to be careful, uh, I think, about what we want to put into the hands of nationals who are, are going to be looking at this fresh and forming conclusions based off of it. So your third article, I want to move to this now, the, says this. It says, the Holy Spirit has created an intricately woven tapestry of truth, amen, uh, containing a number of key terms connected across multiple passages that all contribute to the meaning of the whole. Translators should strive for a high degree of consistency in translating these key terms in order to preserve this interwoven meaning in translation as much as possible. So in other words, you mistranslate a key term, you unravel the tapestry. So what are some examples of that? What are some of the key terms that you've seen mistreated? Yeah, so one of the mentioned uh, in, in the statement is the translation of kurios, which means Lord. And kurios has this amazing function in the New Testament where it uh, is used to represent Yahweh, the, the name of God in Hebrew. Um, but it's also used as a, as a title for Jesus uh, and, it, you know, as the, the master, the owner, the Lord. 
And when, and it's also used to refer to the Holy Spirit in Second Corinthians. And so you've got this word that's used for all three of them, and it's used to tie them together to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, you know, in, in an amazing way. And to explicitly to connect Yahweh of the Old Testament with Jesus. Say, you know, Yahweh is the one true God of Israel, as we talked about before. And guess what? This one true God of Israel, he is Jesus and he is the Holy Spirit. And that's what the that's what the New Testament explicitly and beautifully says. Mm. And so you have this wonderful term and it has this, this great theological role and that needs to be maintained uh, in translation. Unfortunately, there have been places where people have said, well, Muslims are confused by the idea that, you know, Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, and, and, and they call God Lord. And so we're very confused. So we're going to use different terms for those. But by doing that, you're actually ripping at the heart of the Trinity uh, because the, the Holy Spirit used the same term for a reason. Mm. I think also, I'm sure you would agree with this. Isn't it insulting to the intelligence of the lost people that we're trying to reach, whether they're converted or not? Or aren't we really saying at the end of the day, we don't trust you to evaluate this document objectively? Now, you want to avoid misunderstanding. And if somebody does not have the spirit of God in them, their heart is going to be closed to the message of the gospel already. But isn't it insulting to their intelligence that we don't trust them with those actual contact, uh, that, that actual the actual content of scripture? You know, Alex, I think you're absolutely right. And what we've seen from indigenous believers around the world, when they learn about these translation practices, is they they feel that uh, very often, which is that there is this kind of um, noble, savage uh, <laughs> mentality that some Westerners, mm. uh, you know, at least are perceived to have toward the, the indigenous believers or the indigenous people that they're translating for, which is that, you know, these are simple savages that can't really understand, uh, you know, these things. So we need to dumb this down for people. And so for one, you know, one example is that there's uh, an often repeated uh, example uh, of, for example, the lamb of God, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, what about the Islander that, uh, that has never seen a lamb before a sheep? And uh, can we just use a pig? You know, this is the piglet of God because, you know, in this island, they have uh, a tradition of sacrificing pigs for uh, spiritual reasons. So we can just kind of uh, use that dynamic equivalent, as they say. And so not only does that destroy the fabric, of, you know, the tapestry that's talked about in Article 3 of the Arlington Statement, but it also, um, you're right, it, it kind of is... Um, is is a little bit treating the uh, the receptor audience as if they're not able to learn something new. Now we as Westerners we learn things something new every day, right? Uh, and why can't they? So just because they haven't seen a sheep before does not mean that they don't have the uh, mental capacity, the God given mental capacity to understand what a sheep is. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why we have a footnote is that we can put a footnote that says in their language. Yeah a sheep as a fuzzy white animal, kind of like a pig that, <laughs> that's, mm. that was used uh, in the Middle East in this period of time. So this is a historical document. And uh, this is a document that we want people to be able to learn from, not to dumb it down, uh, just, uh, you know, to, to make it, uh, for, you know, in some way more, uh, more acceptable or understanding 
are understandable to people that that don't have the context yet. I love that statement. Just as one final note, we are dealing with a historical document, not just a collection of abstract ideals. Uh, Scott, I don't know. I, to me, that's a helpful takeaway. Yeah, very helpful. And and I think your your point about you know understanding that people have intelligence even if they don't have personal experiences. I mean, we can understand that in our own world. I mean, I've never seen a tsunami, but I can understand the concept of a tsunami and uh, it just needs to be explained. And um, I, I appreciate that. I, I also, it, it, this also brings up why it's so important that as we send out missionaries that they are theologically equipped and uh, whether that means formally uh, or it just means like making sure that we're, you know, we're, we're well read and engaged mm -hmm. with these, these, these ideas, because you don't always know, like, I, I mean, I'm sure there are, I mean, obviously there are very highly skilled, highly trained translators like you, Seth, but there's also, as we, as you and I would know, uh, there are a lot of guys out on the field and, and ladies out on the field that did never intended to go into Bible translation, but they're working in a people group that doesn't have a language and they find themselves on a translation team and, Maybe they're very skilled in this uh, language that doesn't have a scripture. And pretty soon they find out they're on a translation team accidentally. And, uh, you know, bad things can happen when when people start doing translation without a deep understanding of theology. So I really appreciate this statement. Thank you, men, for your work. And I really hope that this gets a wide viewing and that many agencies and uh, key key individuals will get behind this. Um both Seth and Pierre, how can people find out about more about your ministries individually, more of the things you've written and write in are talking about? Um, and where can they also find out more about the Arlington statement specifically? Uh, maybe Pierre, you can go first. Sure. Well, I think the, the key, key place to go and to the key website to share right now with everybody that you, uh, that you can imagine would be interested in this is the, is arlingtonstatement.org. So arlingtonstatement.org is the place to go where you can actually see the, uh, the statement. Um, it's, it's a really quick read and I just want to give a, you know, I want to applaud Seth and all the, you know, and all the other people that have contributed. It's been amazing just to see how, uh, how meaningful it has been, but how short, uh, it is. So it's, it's probably, I mean, you can get through it in a, you know, five to 10 minutes, uh, depending on how, you know, reflective you want to be. But, uh, so that's where you would sign, uh, you know, the statement it's our, it's available in several languages as well. Um, and then in terms of, you know, finding out more information about us, I would say just click the contact us, uh, button on there. And, uh, Seth is heading up a, uh, a new, uh, ministry within horizons, which we're calling biblical translation. So Seth is director of biblical translation. And we have a small but growing team uh, that is uh, building capacity to actually carry out uh, Bible translation projects uh, ourselves. But then also we are trying to add value uh, in the kingdom by really partnering with other uh, people that are in the Bible translation uh, ministry um, who are like-minded in protecting the word of God and, uh, and translating it accurately uh, and biblically in a biblically faithful way. Uh, to all these different languages. Seth, uh, did you want to add something? Yeah, I just want to follow up with that, saying that uh, there's some really great organizations that are uh, initial signers on the Arlington Statement. They include Bibles International, uh, Tyndale Bible Translators, All Nations Bible Translation, uh, as well as several training organizations, I2 Ministries, Radius International, Propempo. There's a whole bunch. There's uh, several 
organizations that are that are led by by people from Christians from Muslim backgrounds and others. Uh, Iran Alive. There's Salam Ministries. There's several organizations on there uh, involved in translation or involved in evangelism, church you know, church planting, and things. That I'm I'm so thankful for all those organizations and the, what they've brought into this whole effort. They've they've given feedback, given a ton of you know, help in, in bringing this whole thing about. So I would encourage people uh, to go to the website, arlingtonstatement.org, and then also, mm-hmm. you know, click on the signing organizations and see all those organizations that are, that are behind this and supporting this and support them, uh, help them, join them, pray for them, uh, and pray that God will bring about more more organizations and people to, to get on board with uh, with the Arlington statement. I just signed it myself before we started nice, recording. <laughs> well, there we go. That's going to tip it over, Alex. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I just want to make a statement too. Like Seth has got a couple articles out there on the internet that I want to encourage you to check out at Journal of Biblical Missiology. And so I uh, just want to put that out there as well, as, including I think a really fascinating article on titled a former Mormon on why Muslim idiom translations are dangerous, which I think is really interesting take because I've always often wondered about that when we get into contextualization issues with Muslims, um, mm. how similar, how we don't hear a lot of people trying to do that with Mormons and yet the similarities are similar. So anyway, check, God, that, not yet. Mm, it, check those articles only, out. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, thank you guys so much for joining us and uh, excited about this statement and excited about uh, seeing seeing our names uh, fill up uh, that as well and, and get wide support for that. God bless you guys. Yes, thank you both. Thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate your uh, kind of shedding light on this uh, on this issue and this movement. So appreciate being with you. To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com or check out abwe.org slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. To ask a question or suggest a topic, email alex at missionspodcast.com, and we'll see you next time on the Missions Podcast.